able to be a blessing to someone that you know or maybe even don't know. Um, it was a wonderful time to celebrate with you all at church and to um, have Christmas Eve service with you and see so many of you with your friends and family as guests here with us. Um, what a great time we had. And what a great passage of scripture we read this morning. Love one another deeply. Wow. I could just go home and think about that. It doesn't say hide in your man cave, right? <laughs> you know, when bad things happen, just forget all the humans in the world and uh, live in your basement. Love one another deeply. Wow. The past four weeks, we've, been, uh, we've taken a break from, from our normal sermon series that we've been in because we've been celebrating the weeks of Advent together, which comes along with just special times of reflection about the birth of Christ and um, what a remarkable time that was to consider Christ as the advent of peace and love and joy and whatnot. And um, what a great time that we had to reflect on that. We've taken a break um, for, from a series um, because we were recognizing Advent. Um, and that series has been basically um, discussing life after loss. That's the name of the series. And it's going through uh, a New Testament letter called First Peter. It's in the, the, um, the later parts of the Bible. And it was a letter written by the Apostle Peter. And he's writing basically to a, a church that's under heavy attack, um, going through a lot of persecution, a lot of loss, a lot of tragedy. And he's basically tr um, aiming to encourage them in Christ, to give them the equipment that they need to have real life after loss, to have a thriving life in spite of the trials that surround them. So we've really been interested in discovering what, the direction, what, what kind of direction the Bible can give us to equip us to handle these types of traumas as Christians ourselves. And if you don't know Christ, what the Bible has to say to introduce you to a life um, of, of love um, of God and his, through his son Jesus. What we basically talked about, we've mentioned this some from time to time, but the three T's, I've kind of called it, in a, in a cycle or progression in times of loss. And the first T, uh, just as way of review, is basically the traumatic event, the trial. Something happens, a divorce, a death, the loss of health, the, the loss um, of a job, or the loss of wealth, right? Different types of tragedies hit us in our lives, and they sort of leave us on our backs. We don't really know what to do about them. So we have this traumatic event that occurs in our lives. And then the second T is uh, trust. Our trust um, becomes shaky. We become insecure. Because of the loss, we start to wonder, is life as safe as I thought it was? Am I going to be okay? We start a asking questions like this. We become insecure um, on a certain level. And then this uh, triggers certain behaviors. That's the third T. To deal with the pain of the loss and to, to deal with this kind of new feeling of insecurity, we have to do something about this. Um, it might be hide in our man cave. It might be we begin drinking, um, sexual relationships, all these different types of things that or bury ourselves in our work, right? Um, or we can develop new attitudes, trigger attitudes about life. Life isn't safe. God isn't safe. Is there even a God? He doesn't love me if there is a God. All these, start, all these um, questions we start to answer and these attitudes we start to develop and even maybe behaviors that we start to participate in to alleviate ourselves from the insecurity of the pain that we went through. And this is very normal. It's very typical to go through this. Everyone goes through this from time to time in life. So these, um, like I said, these behaviors or attitudes are triggered by the memory of the trauma or the, the new insecure position that we find ourselves in, and we're aiming to make ourselves safe again, um, or at least to give us the illusion of safety. Okay? First Peter is the Christian sufferer's manual. It's teaching us how to deal with this normal psychological process, but in a way that's true, not in a way that's imaginary, not in a way that we sort of make up the solutions to our own problems, God has given us an answer and how to navigate through these times in life. So like I said, it's written to Christians enduring intense persecution, and we've aimed to, to demonstrate so far how the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ answers our trials. Okay, It transforms, the death and resurrection of Christ transforms our insecurities. 
The reason for it is because it acknowledges the reality of our trauma, but it also shows us that there's a God that identifies with us in our trauma, but also is doing something about it. He's not sitting back. He's dying for it. And he's resurrecting again for it. There's victory, you see? There is an answer. So the gospel answers our trials. Now it transforms our insecurities. We start to realize that even though these trials have happened to us, we are safe because Christ is risen, because he's done something about it. And this replaces our trigger reactions and attitudes to gospel-inspired attitudes. We start to, to learn that he is safe. And not only is he safe, but my relationship with him is the only healing power that I have, okay? So this morning, I want to continue this important journey of soul health for the suffering, soul health for the suffering. It seems to me that the greatest symptom of suffering and insecurity, that trigger reaction or attitude, um, is the progressive inability to love. When we go through trauma, there's something psychological, something natural about trauma that triggers this reaction to enter into authentic and meaningful loving relationships. C.S. Lewis wrote a remarkable little book called The Four Loves, and it's worth anyone's read. It's really fantastic. Um, he talks about the four kinds of love that the Bible talks about. Uh, you know that in Scripture, there are, are uh, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And um, there are four different words in the Greek for love. And they all describe a different aspect of love. We have one word for love. I love my mom, right, I think. Um, I love my wife, and I love cake, right? We use that word in this just spectrum, I love my friends, right? There's this spectrum of meaning, and we all know what we mean by it when we say it, but in Greek they actually allow, they have different words so that you understand what kind of love it is that you mean when you're saying it, okay? But C.S. Lewis writes in this book, The Four Loves, he writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin, but in that cas casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It won't be broken. It will be unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You see, oftentimes, loss, in whatever form it takes, leads to this inability to love. And might I suggest here, that primarily we block our love from God himself. We might still have affection for each other, for our kids, for our grandkids, but something internally stops with our affection. It only goes so far. It's remarkable to me that Peter, if you read the first, first chapter of Peter, we read the, the later part, he's talking all about the things that Christ has done. Every Every amazing act of redemption, dying for our sins, raising again the blood of Christ, forgiving us all of our iniquities, all these different things that, that Peter is talking about to encourage the church. And after this wonderful diatribe of theological discussion and the magnificent work of God in Christ, he says, love one another deeply. And I believe it's because the first thing to go in trial is love. So the first thing he says for us to do is love. We have to consider our hearts when we go through trauma. It's funny because we resist love in trial, but isn't it true that love is often the thing that heals us in trial? So, so Peter reminds the church of all that Christ has done, speaking into all of their losses, that Christ is risen, that he is victor, that he will give them peace.
peace and rest that despite how things appear, God has saved them, prepared a place for them, forgiven their sins, destined them to eternal glory in his presence, his eternal rest. This is all the first parts of chapter 1. And he then says, because of this, friends, because of this church, be holy just as I am holy. That is, be set apart. Be like God. Be reserved for his use and for his usefulness. Be his. Be with him. That's what it means to be holy, to be his, to be him, to be set apart for him. And trauma often pushes us in the other direction, doesn't it? We don't want to be close to anyone, especially God. We want to be away from him because we're confused by him. We're angry at him. But now, after he says, be holy like God is holy, in other words, be close to God, now, now Peter's saying, be close to each other. Be close to God, be holy. Now, love one another deeply. See, the antidote to a grieving soul doesn't always happen right away. It doesn't always answer all our questions. But our healing is found in our proximity to God and our proximity to his love through his church. So when we isolate ourselves from God himself in our prayer closets or we isolate ourselves from his people, we're cutting ourselves off from his love, which is the healing balm of Gilead. See, friends, that's where we get our perspective during times of trial. So he says, love one another deeply. So this morning, I want to take, make some observations about the kind of love he starts to talk about in First Peter. And let's make five, okay? That's more than usual, right? But they'll go quick, I promise. Love is born, love is shared, love is sincere, love endures, and love heals. Born, shared, sincere, endured, and heals. Let's look at love is born. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart because you have been born again. In other words, because you have been born again, you are equipped to finally love. You say, well, couldn't I love before I knew Christ? Yeah, but let me explain. According to this, love, authentic love, real love, Bible love, requires a new beginning. Not just a new beginning, but a new birth, a new soul, a completely foreign way of thinking about life and about love, a completely new attitude. The, the implication, if we need to be born again, the implication is our first soul our firstborn life, there's something wrong with it. There's something broken. What, the things that we were guided by in our souls, our virtues, our desires, are off to the left or right. They're not on center. They're not on point. So at its core, there's something wrong with our lives. Now, I know people don't like hearing that in our, our culture. It's sort of offensive. But can... Can't we just all sort of admit that there's really no arguing with that? Something's off. And I know that, not just about, I especially know that about you guys. But <laughs> I know that. No one's going to convince me of that. Something is wrong with the way Kyle DeGagney thinks. It's just true. And anyone in this room who has any measure of honesty is going to say the same thing. Something's off. Something's wrong. So the Bible says, yeah, you're, that's true. There is something wrong. There is something off. You need to be born again. You need to be new. <clears throat> so life, all that matters, what's important, who we are, how we love, all of it is off to the left or the right. It's not on center. We're not getting something right. We're missing something. The Bible says, the Bible talks about this with, with the sense of having blind eyes. Our blind eyes need sight, right? He gives, he gives sight to the blind. Our deaf ears need to hear. The dead are risen again. So there's something, something dead in us that needs to be given new life. We need to be born anew. According to this passage and others, the way a person, so we need to be born again. We need to, that's, that's the Bible language, right? And I know that in our culture, are you one of those born-agains that has some, some kind of stigma attached to it? And I know that, but let's just try to ignore that for a moment with me and follow me, okay? 
The Bible says we need to be born again. We need to be born anew. And according to this passage and many others, the way a person, so okay, how do we become born again? Well, scripture says you were born again by obeying the truth. Now, what does that mean? Did you, did you, did you recall that language as we read it, that you obeyed the truth? Now, should you think here that what the Bible is saying is that the way we're born again is by wiping our nose and showing up to church and helping old ladies across the street, being good, stop being bad, moral reform. The gospel does that to us, but it is not what wakes us up. It is not what gives us new eyes. It's the reaction to that new sight. That's the fruit. Don't confuse the fruit with the root. New eyes, new life forms us more into his image, which makes us more like him, but, it, but that's not what makes us alive in him, okay? <clears throat> it says, through him, in the preceding verse, in verse 21, we didn't read this, we read this the week before, a few weeks before, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So what did they do? They believed in God who raised him from the dead. and gl- They had faith, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Okay? Through him you believed in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God. Not in yourself. Not in your good works. Your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, it continues to say. Now that you have purified yourself by... So obeying the truth here in scripture is simply having faith and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? The new birth, the new life, now purified, comes by faith in the gospel. That is trust that he finished the work for us. That he did it on the, it is finished, he has done it. Let your weary heart, there is no penance to offer, right? That's like that, that song that we sing. He has finished the work We have faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven and we're alive. We see. We finally see. We're lost and now we're found. So that new birth, the new life now purified comes by faith in the gospel. That's how we obey the truth. By trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ as the satisfaction for God's justice towards our sin. He satisfies that justice. To be born again Okay, that's fine. Now we know how to be born again, to trust in Jesus. What does it mean? To be born again, to have a new soul, is to see God clearly for the first time. To love God. To know God through Christ. To realize for the first time that your problem is not that you're not married or you don't have enough money or that your mom and dad don't love you enough. Your problem is that you have desperately needed the love of Christ and you have been without it. You've looked for it and everything else but him. So to be born again, you start to realize, oh, that's my problem. My, my problem is a God-love problem, not a people-love problem. You see? That's what it means to be born again. Prior to this, we did love, but it was partial and it was incomplete. We didn't really know how to love until we came to love God the Most High. And let me explain. Isn't it true that normally we love God's stuff more than him? Isn't that true? I, I sort of almost did that today. There's, there's certain things that we sort of just want more than him. We want the affection of someone else more than him. It matters more to us. You see, God is there, God's in the room, we sort of acknowledge his existence, but he just kind of doesn't matter, right? He's like the bookshelf in our living room, but we could sort of do without it. It's there, that's nice, I like that bookshelf, but there's other things that are much, that that 60-inch flat screen, that's way more important to me than that bookshelf, right? And that's a lot of times how we treat God, isn't it? Um, It's just true. So normally, we love God's creation, more than we love God. So we acquire the affection of other people, their esteem, their applause. And by that standard, we measure our worth. We measure our own safety. Right? We, me- we measure our significance, our purpose. We, we strive after these sorts of things. 
Rather than God's love and affection, we strive after many other sorts of loves and affections. And as children, where do we get this from primarily? Our parents, mom and dad. Isn't that true? When mom and dad love their kids and praise their kids, that's all that matters. When my, when my little pearl paints or, or colors a picture um, and, I, and I go up to her and I praise her and I say, wow, Pearl, you do that. Something happens in her little heart. She beams with joy, right? She is so happy that I'm happy with her. Um, but if I'm not happy with her, <laughs> something in the reverse happens. It's devastating because she needs my love. That's all she knows. She needs my love and affection. Right? She's affirmed by it. She's safe with it. I take care of her. Right? We, know, we all know this. So as children, this is where we look for it from, from our parents. But as we age, you all know that that starts to not mean so much to our kids. Isn't that true? Parental approval can even become annoying to your kids. Isn't that true? Like mom and dad applauding me at the basketball game or my dance recital, it's sort of embarrassing. And not only is it embarrassing, it doesn't do anything for me anymore. I don't feel like I'm a good dancer or a good basketball player because mom and dad are applauding me. They don't know what they're talking about. Coach does. My friends do. So something happens. Their love, my need for their love, shifts to my need for the love and affection and approval of my peers, teachers, or colleagues. Isn't that true? And so it goes in life. From one person to the next, as you age, it becomes a spouse or a co-worker or a friend or a boss. On and on and on it goes. And we begin to disdain each one. Oh, isn't that true too? We finally win the affection of the person we wanted it from, and over time it grows stale. It starts to aggravate us again that they love us so much. It starts to feel like, well, what does it matter if they love us? Why, why does that happen? Because you are looking for love from the created thing over God himself. You see, what you're looking for is God's love. He's the only perfect, endless one. He's the one that is without beginning and without ending. He created you to love him and for you to love him back. To be born again is to finally realize that all my life, the applause and love and affection I have been looking for in people around me, I've really needed from him. I've been separated from him. And I come to him by faith through Jesus Christ, and that love is restored. And now, my ability to really love the other humans around me is unlocked. Because I don't need them anymore. I don't make them more than they are. I don't expect them to be God. Now I can really love them. Isn't that true? So what begins when we're born again is the relearning that we're created for God's love and that his love is enough. That all other loves, though important, are this fancy word, penultimate. They're underneath what is more important, what is ultimate, penultimate, secondary. Okay, All other loves are behind the love of Christ. And that unlocks the ability to begin to really love other people. Because we're, we're loving them for who they are, not who we want them or imagine them to be. Okay? Do you see that? You see, when, God lo when I love God, God always loves me back. Isn't that true? When I love you, <laughs> right? How am I going to handle your rejection if I think you're God? It's going to crush me, isn't it? Because God is the ultimate. He's all we need. If the ultimate rejects me, then who am I? I'm a worm. But if God loves me and I know love me and I know he loves me and you reject me, it still hurts, but I can handle it. Right? Because I know that your verdict does not overrule God's. 
So how do you handle divorce? How do you handle even loss? The loss, the, the death of a loved one. Love is still intact. It remains. You are still loved by God. We don't have to lock up our love like Lewis says. The Bible says be born again. Obey the truth of the gospel. Love God and receive his love. Okay? <clears throat> love is born. Number two, love is shared. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply. Love one another deeply from the heart. Oh, that's hard. We've done this in life. We've loved lots of other people deeply. Really where the, rub meets the rubber meets the road, right, is when they scorn us and they shame us and they betray us. You see, that's when, like, can I continue to love anyone now? That's when this becomes a challenge. When we've be, been betrayed time and time again, what do we do with this now? How do we protect our vulnerable hearts? Love one another, it says. I don't want you to think by what I said about love being born and needing the love of God. I'm not suggesting that being the object of God's love through new birth means that loving each other is unnecessary or trivial or useless. The Bible just told us to love one another. I'm not saying that when someone betrays us that it shouldn't hurt. To not share love, according to this verse, to not share love amongst each other is to do damage to each other. It's to hurt the other, to hide, to hold up your heart hidden, to not share your life, the affection of God, with a friend or um, the, mem the members of your church, to not serve them with the kind of compassionate affection that the Bible commands us to does damage to your soul and to mine. God created us to live in communities that love each other and are committed to the other person. So to not share this is really to do damage to each other. To withhold love or to have love withheld from us is the cause, the cause of so much trial and so much pain. Isn't that true? There's not something wrong with you spiritually if you feel grieved when you lose. You see, that's oftentimes a misunderstanding of the Christian life. That, like, why are you sad? You should be happy. Jesus is alive. Right? Like, don't you have faith? Well, why did Jesus weep then? You see, why did Jesus grieve? There is a kind of grief, I think, that, is, that can prove to be problematic in our lives if it's without hope. But, not, but grief is normal and nat natural and part of healing. So there's not something wrong with us spiritually when we feel this way. What's important, though, I think, is to distinguish between the agents of love, God and creation that we just talked about. When creation loves me, what I mean by that is when you guys love me and when I love you, I'm acting like God. I'm created in his image. So I, to you, should be a proof that God loves you. Not just that I love you, but that God loves you. You see, because I'm imitating God as his created thing, as his created person. Does that make sense? So now when I love you, it should reinforce the reality of God's love for you. And in all of the other instances of life where someone's betrayed you or, betray or, or violated a trust, when God demonstrates his love to you through a person, that, that when, uh, so when God's people love you, it should be proof to you that that attitude, that trigger attitude, that God doesn't love me should answer it. So now you know, oh, God still does love me. I'm not alone. He still is there. You see, when I'm behaving in a way that I, I should be behaving and loving you well, loving one another, then it's a proof that God's love endures and it remains and it's present in spite of the trials and losses of your life. Isn't that great? He's there and he continues his compassion. When creation loves me, God loves me. Isn't that great? Knowing this, I receive both his love and the creature's love. A two-for-one deal. 
right? It's fantastic. Now, what about the, uh, the opposite, though? When creation hates me, what happens then? Well, to be born again, if I have born again eyes, I'm realizing that that person is not acting in accord with the character of God. Not that it doesn't sting, but that I know that in spite of that behavior, that the love of God abides. Now, sometimes love is withheld not because of a choice, but because of death. Somebody dies. But still, the love of God abides despite creation's resistance or inability to imitate the king in that instance. Does that make sense? But if I hold the creature in greater esteem than God, for the creature to love me, God loves me, but when the creature hates me, God hates me. How fickle, my insecure my life becomes at that point. Oh, and how devastated we can be at times in life when a spouse or even when you're younger, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend betrays you or rejects you. How, how hard that is. To love only God as God and to love creation as just that, creation, is really to love in community. When I know who I'm loving, what you can and cannot do, that unlocks all this power, the power to really love. It's like sound waves that sort of bump off of everything around us. Right? Like, that's, that's sort of what happens. But the sad implication of this text, though, is that if we don't love one another, really we don't love God. If we don't see the image of God in each other as God's special creation, if we scorn that and hate that, sort of the implication, this is what it says in 1 John, if you hate your brother, you hate me. You hate me. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that you're not born again if you've ever felt anger or even hate towards another person. But your compass as a Christian always points north. You know what a compass says? You guys know what compasses are, right? You take a compass, it's always going to point north. Now, I don't have to walk north, right? I can walk any which way I want. But I know when I'm not walking north. <laughs> like, because I have that compass in my hand. That's, what, that's sort of what it's like to be born again. It's not like we always make the right choice. It's not like we always make the loving decision. But we know when we don't, right? There's the Holy Spirit convicting us of that in the process. And we might, might be angry and mad and walking in the other direction, but we always know. That compass is pointing north, okay? To be born again is to love God for God and to love people for people. Amen? So love is shared. Love, number three, is sincere. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. Sincere love. Now, not much more really has to be said about this, except to say that love, the love that is born in us at the new birth is real. It's not pretend. It's not pretentious. Has someone ever kind of pretentiously, you know, been kind to you? Like, or, or displayed love to you, but you know it's just a show. They don't really like you. As a matter of fact, you know, when the second that you leave the room, they're scheming. You know, like they, they have a disdain for you even, but they're just pretending because that's what Christians do, right? Hey, brother, sister, you're great. But they're really gossiping you about you nine times out of ten. Or maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it's not that visceral. But we're not gossiping. We're not being mean to, to anyone. But we're just faking it. We really just, you know, we're just showing up. We're putting on a good show. But, but our hearts are far from God and uh, the, the people around us. I know that that's been me many times in life. But love is sincere. It's real. You can't get away from it. We're not pretending to love each other. Now, there are times when we're not so good at it, and there are times when we're better at it. But essentially, again, it's pointing due north. In general, the Christian attitude towards their brother and sister in Christ and toward God's creation as a whole is and should be love. It's love. We're not pretending. It's real. It's from the heart, the Bible says. 
In other words, deep down in your guts, there's this born-again instinct to love God's people and God's creation. Not to hate it, not to be mad at it, not to fight it, not to be at war with it. And when all of that war and fighting and all that messy, mucky, sinful stuff starts happening, you might have to, you know, speak up and do something difficult, but essentially you know this is not the way the kingdom of God should be. And it grieves you and it's heavy on you. And like Jesus wept over Jerusalem, you weep over a splintered and fractured church. It's not fun for you. You see, there's this love instinct born in us. It's sincere. It's real. You know, I talked about this a little bit already, but the Bible talks about different kinds of love. Agape love is one of those Greek words for love. And it's the kind of divine love given when no love is given in return. It's without strings, in other words. Love your enemies. That's a divine love. It's agape love. It's a love without condition. You're not expecting anything in return. Right? I'll love my wife, but man, she better do what I want her to do in life. You know, like we have, we go into marriage with those expectations. Oh, we love each other and let's go on our honeymoon and everything is magical. But oh, she doesn't cook the foods I like. She leaves her socks on the floor. Like all these things over the years start to come out, right? And now it's like, well, maybe I don't love you. You see, what kind of love is that? It's conditional, isn't it? It's not agape. It's not I love you in spite of you, right? I love you for you, for who you are. You see, that's agape love. Eros love. This is the fun one, right? Um, it's the sensual, erotic love that the Bible reserves for, ma- for marriage. So it talks about certain kinds of, it'll use in the New Testament and other places to, uh, that, this sort of love when it's referring to marital intimacy. There's another word in the scripture that's a phileo love. It's uh, like Philadelphia, brotherly love, okay? It's the love of a brother or of a friend. Okay, it occurs between family and friends. That's, that's um, the kind of love that phileo means. And, and Lewis uh, remarks again here, and I, I really like this, this statement. Eros will have naked bodies, but philos, naked souls. Eros will have naked bodies, friendship, phileo love, naked souls. Right, you really see me. Not just my body, not just the surface kind of jokes I tell and kind of the meaningless things we talk about at times from time to time with people, but you really get to know me deep inside, deep down. And that's what the Bible is here. Well, that's what it's talking about here. To have a sincere love from the heart, a vulnerable, transparent love, not a pretentious one, not a one that o- not one that only goes to the ninety-yard line, but not to the, not not to a touchdown. Right? It doesn't only go so far. It opens up. It doesn't mean that we're like we're as transparent like this with every single person we meet. Okay, but it does mean at least, at the very least, with God. Now, we can hide from God. You guys probably all have tried to do that. Some, some of you in this morning might be hiding from God by coming to this church. Isn't that ironic? Right? But we can't hide from him. That's the irony. But we, we try to. But God is such that we can be entirely naked in front of him, body and soul, that he will not laugh, he will not reject, he won't scorn you, He'll embrace you. And why? There are ugly parts of us, right? There are things on me that you don't want to see, inside and outside, right? We'll edit that one. Um, It's just true, you know? So we wear clothes, (laughs) right? We're hiding stuff, right? And not just that, but our souls, too. There are things about my life that I probably wouldn't tell from this pulpit, right? And it's not because I'm hiding things. Many of you I would tell, but I don't know all of you, and I don't know what you'll do with that, right? But the reality, though, is I can tell God anything, and he won't laugh at me. He won't reject me, even the ugly parts about me. And why is that? Because he died for me. It's gone. It's forgiven. So that frees me to be completely naked in front of him, to really love God, right? I don't have to hide anything. Isn't that fantastic? 
His love covers us, removes our sin, deals with it, and he doesn't reject us because of it. He won't laugh at us. He won't yawn. Right? How, how many people have just been so excited about something in their life and you're telling someone else and they couldn't seem to care less? Right? Like, like it's just a, a function of life. They're not impressed. <laughs> right? But God doesn't do that with us. Friends, love, sincere love, deep love is vulnerable. It's honest. It opens up. It doesn't hide. Pain, joy, everything, it's all on the table. That you see, that's the kind of love that God calls us to. Love one another deeply, sincerely from the heart. You see, friends, what we need to do as Christians and as people is we need to love God like that, and we need to find someone that we trust, maybe more than someone, and to love them like that too. You see, God created us to love him, but also to love him through his people. You can't love God if you don't love his people. You see, God, God said to Saul, remember on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. He, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church is to persecute Christ himself. And friends, you know, reversely, to love the church, to love God's people, is to love Christ himself. You see, to love Christ is to love his people. To love his people is to love Christ. So who are you loving? Who are you rejecting? Oh, they're too young. I don't understand their music. Why do they dress like that? He wears jeans. You know, like, he should be in a suit and tie. He's a pastor. Like, all these things, like, you, so we, we withhold love because of our attitudes. But the, you know, the, I should be able, like, and I know this takes time and maturity. I'm not trying to be hard on anyone. But the reality is growth in Christ should lead me to be able to love all kinds of people that once seemed objectionable to me. So we got to get over our cranky, crusty, prickly attitudes and realize that God saved all sorts of people that aren't you. <laughs> Amen? Love endures. Number four. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Wow. The implications of this are huge. Let me finish. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Now what is this saying? What's this teaching us? Well, first of all, it's pretty obvious. It's saying that God is forever. His word is forever. And we should have a certain amount of hope because of that. There's a security in our relationship with him for that. But there's more than that. If our new life, if our being born again, what it's saying is our being born again happens through something that was imperishable, the word of God. That means that our born again life is imperishable. That means that what has been born anew in you when you put faith in Christ can't be stolen or robbed or lost. It endures and if you have been born again to love deeply, your love will endure too. Love endures. If the word of God endures, and if our new life because of that word endures, and if the new life of love, that is the product, the fruit, that love will endure. Does that make sense? Our new life will not perish, but rather it will endure. Not because you're going to keep yourself good and keep yourself in church and keep your nose clean, but because God supernaturally holds you. You can't wriggle out. Okay? If our new life endures, then the love that is the fruit of new life will also endure. It will not end. Oh, this is beautiful. Never again... Oh, can you all look at me? Never again will you be outside of the marvelous, infinite love of God through Christ. Never again. No matter what you do. No matter how you fail. He will never withhold it from you again. You are lovely. You are loved. 
You say, well, well, all right, let's get our sin on. (laughs) Come on. That's not what we do, right? If I knew, like, that my wife had this enduring love for me that wouldn't shake or change, that doesn't make me want to cheat on her. What kind of villain, what kind of evil would I be? It makes me want to live my life for her, doesn't it? Lay, lay it down for her. That's the, that is the magic of unconditional love. That's what it does. That's the fruit of new life. It endures. Never again will you be outside of the love of Christ when you put your faith in him. You might have lost the love of your dad, and that stings. Oh, boy, does it sting. Of your mom, of a spouse. You might have lost the love of someone because they've, they're not here anymore. They died. But never again will you, you lo- never, never will you lose the love of God in Christ. Messing up won't lose it. Enemies can't rob it. By grace through faith in the death of Jesus, you are guaranteed to always be the object of his kind of affection. Isn't that great? As, God words, as God words, God's word endures, so will his love endure for you. You know, when God, in the Bible, when God speaks, right, you know that things popped into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. The word of God is powerful. It is unchanging. Nothing can interfere with it. The angels couldn't stop it. They couldn't get in the way. Let there be light. And they stopped it somehow. They can't do that. There is no power greater than God's word. It is endures forever. People are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. The grass, wouldn't it be great if flowers didn't fit well? Maybe Barbara would be out of business if they didn't fade. <laughs> Let's say she wouldn't have to work so hard, but then she, she really wouldn't have to work so hard. Wouldn't that be fantastic? But that's not what happens. Things perish. They leave us, but the word of God endures forever. And that word of God, through Christ, speaks to you infinite, unchanging, unending love. Well, if you don't believe me, let's read Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Oh, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come in the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, isn't that great? You see, our attitude, the the triggering attitude because of trauma, makes us believe that God doesn't love me. Or God doesn't love this person or that person. He's not there. He's not powerful. He's not protecting. But the gospel turns that on its ear and says, never have I loved you more, and I always will. And death is simply the means to deliver you to that love. Amen? Finally, love heals. For you have been born again. Born again. New life. The death, the sickness, the disease, the I'm going left and right instead of straight, all this mess and muck. I have been born again. How? The love of Christ. God's love heals. It answers everything. By faith in Jesus Christ, you're born again. You're new you're purified. And friends, in Christ, you never have to wonder if love hangs in the balance, if you're worthy of it, if you're lovely, if anyone is proud of you. You see, God is. In Christ, you never need to wonder this anymore. In our trials, we become insecure. We wonder, am I this? Am I that? Am I loved? Do I matter? Am I safe? But the the gospel settles that once and for all. The good news, that's what the gospel is. The good news of Jesus Christ settles that once and for all. You are the object of God's love and all of the inconsistencies of life. The losses, the regrets, the pains, the intruders in God's world, he intends to fix, to conquer. At the cross, he does it. So he lifts us out of the muck and mire and he begins his dance with us. Isn't that great? Let me quote Lewis one more time. He says, love and friendship are a community of people or two people standing in an immense solitude. Isn't that great language? 
You see, when I love God, everything else is sort of, that's like the center. And everything like the universe is revolving around it. That's the sun and the planets and everything else is going around that. We stand with Christ in this immense solitude. And we finally have found ourselves. Outside of it, I was lost. But here now we can stand with the rest of creation, loving each other deeply as we love God chiefly because he loved us primarily. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, um, we might ask ourselves, what is, what is it that we love most in the world? Friends or children or spouse and how wonderful it is that you've given us those things and how great it is to love those things. But God, can't we see all of those loves as pointing to you, our chief and ultimate love? Oh God, I pray if there's people here this morning that are not born again, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ and that we would all stop aimlessly searching for something that only you can satisfy. Would you come to Christ this morning, trust in him, believe in him, that his death and resurrection were for sinners like us in our place, and that he rose again to reunite us with the only one that matters, or the one that matters most, I should say. God, I pray, Lord, that if our love has grown cold, if that light seems dim, God, that we would pray with David, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. God, I pray, Lord, that we would renew our first love. God, give us a fresh, fresh compassion to love one another deeply. In his name we pray, amen.